What we're doing on these Sunday nights is um, the result of our elders calling the church to uh, 50 days of prayer and fasting. And we did that as a church and then spent some time seeking the Lord personally, what he's leading us to. But then our elders met for at least 3,000 hours, it seemed like, over that period of time. That's a slight exaggeration. Um, and we met a lot anyway and really came up with what we believe is the, the kind of the big picture of the vision. We're still working on details, but it had to do with poured out lives being poured out primarily in discipling. And while I've preached, I don't know how many series on discipleship and making disciples, What I came under deep conviction of was this. I came under conviction that I've made this too complicated and it needs to be simplified. And people are thinking that you almost have to have a seminary degree or something to disciple someone. And the definition we've used throughout this whole little series is discipling is just helping others follow Jesus. It can be a more informal relationship. It can be meet at a certain time to study a certain thing, a more structured relationship. It can be an as-needed relationship once somebody matures, but you're helping them follow Jesus. And, and so that's what we've been dealing with. And so for four weeks... We've been looking at just discipleship basics. And then I told you that on the fourth week, it's all been put into a little booklet so you can take notes on the things you got tonight. And then as you leave, there will be little booklets out in the point, the area where the tables are out there. And they're kind of a primarily a blue color. And uh, they will be out there for you to pick up. And I think we've got about 500 on the first run because we figured you always have some mistakes as you get into it, no matter how many people proof it. And so uh, you can take at least at least take two, one for you and the person you've been praying about. We started that last week of who God's leading you to disciple. It could be a family member, it could be one of your children, it could be your spouse who's just said to you, to the husband, I, I need help. Would you just disciple me? And this little booklet is not some kind of a formal thing that everything must be gone through. You may spend six week on, weeks on lesson one, and then you've kind of already dealt with what's in lesson two and jump over here and then use another book for, you know, you, it's, this is not some kind of a structured thing that you've got to do it just like according to a plan. It's that we just want to give you helps. And so after the service, you can pick that up. Well, in the fourth part of this little basics of discipleship, we're looking at power to live the Christian life. And each week I've read a little three or four minute excerpt from the book that our, our, uh, our elders were all kind of, we really like because it's so simple. Plus, I like little books. And um, this one is just entitled Discipling by Mark Dever. And I've read out of it, I think, each week, but let me read just a little bit out of um, the one for tonight. Uh, This chapter, and I'm just reading excerpts from it, not a whole chapter, is entitled, um, Pay the Cost. What's the cost of discipleship? How do you disciple? Well, you find someone. You establish goals. And finally, you just do it. You disciple and... To do that, you have to pay the cost. The cost is time, study, prayer, and love. First of all, discipling takes time. All relationships take time. There's no shortcut to that. And even if your schedules work together, you and the person you're discipling, discipling relationships take time. 
Convenience will not entirely eliminate cost. Anytime we do life-on-life relationships, we give each other the gift of time. The second um, cost to discipling is discipling requires study. If faith comes by hearing the Word, you want to feed faith with the Word. The expositional sermons you hear preached at church, I hope, provide a good foundation for conversations the following week. And let me stop there and say that we've said the, the manuscripts from Sunday by about Tuesday are online. And you can go just download them and, and uh, print them out and have that to use to, for discipleship. And that's just one little suggestion. There's a whole lot of better stuff out there, but that one's really cheap. And uh, you can get it quickly. Um, he says, the expositional sermons you hear preached at church provide good foundations for conversations the following week. Other books can help as well as they, are, as they lead you into, uh, deeper into a topic. We study the things we love. And in your discipling relationships, use the Bible. Spend time just in the Word. Discipling, third cost, requires prayer. Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray for those you're discipling and teach them to pray. And I'm leaving out a lot. He says a lot more. I'm just kind of giving you the highlights of it. And then, finally, discipling requires love. Jesus instructs, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another, John 13.34. He also summarizes the whole law and in the two commandments to love God and love your neighbor as yourself in Mark 12, 28 through 31. Hopefully you see how important love is in a discipling relationship. Love initiates a discipling relationship. Love perseveres in a discipling relationship. Love humbly receives the criticism that often comes in a discipling relationship. And love humbly gives of itself in a place in a discipling relationship. Love allows us to end discipling relationships. We're not God. We cannot provide everything someone needs. We might not always be available. People move. A child is born. You get a different job. Circumstances change. Maybe they need something you're not equipped to give. We need a love that humbles us to recognize that what they need is not us but God. And that God can use us for a while and then use someone else. Just some real basics of helping others follow Jesus. Well, tonight, as we look at the power to live the Christian life, let me just remind you of the first three. We began this little four-part series by looking at the purpose and the problem of all mankind. And we saw that our purpose is to glorify God, to put Him on display, to magnify Him, is the way that Paul described it in Philippians 1.20, that, mag- that Christ would be magnified through us. Our task is to put God on display through our lives as He controls our lives so that that our lives make God famous to those who are around us. Like, I want to know what the difference is that you have, and I want it also. And then we saw the problem with sin coming into the world, and we saw the devastating effects of sin. Not just that it caused us to be lost, but the, the fact that as descendants of Adam, every one of us inherited that Adamic nature, that nature of Adam that's in rebellion against God, desiring to be our own God, and that fall into sin affected every part of our being, our spirit, our soul, our body. 
And then in the second lesson, we looked at the solution to mankind's greatest problem. And the solution is twofold. First of all, is justification that when we come to Christ, he makes us right with God through faith in him by giving us his righteousness. It is what the old theologians called an alien righteousness. We stand right before God because we have the righteousness of another that's been put on our account. And the very righteousness of Christ is put on our account. That's justification. And then we looked at our union with Christ. That 162 times, or was it 164? It was over 160 anyway. That it tells us we are in Christ, in Him, in the Beloved. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation into Christ Jesus so that we are in Christ. His life is now our life. We're a partaker of His life. His cross is now our cross. His, his future is now our future as we will spend it with Him. And then last week we looked at lesson three, which is the disciples' new identity. That once you are in Christ, that's where your identity is found. Your identity is not found in what you do, what people think of you, how successful you are by world standards, but your identity is determined by who God says you are because you are in His Son, Jesus Christ. And we look just to scratch the surface, but to give some ideas of what this identity is. And we saw that in Christ we are loved, in Christ we are accepted by God, in Christ we are redeemed in Christ we are forgiven and in Christ we are secure and we saw how we live out of our true identity not out of how we feel or what others might may think or say about us and then lesson four tonight is power to live the Christian life now I made a statement there in the notes you have that I want to back up with some quite a bit of scripture the Christian life from its inception its beginning to its conclusion at physical death is a supernatural life. If I could coin a word that's not in the dictionary, but I think you'll understand it. What has happened in Christianity is that we have desupernaturalized Christianity. And, and so we, we began to operate on all these perfunctory little principles and little programs and little plans. And we leave out the supernatural power of God in changing an individual's life. Um, now, by supernatural, I mean beyond man's natural powers and abilities. And apart from God's power, the Christian life is impossible. Now, let's look at some specifics. That, you know, the, the fact that a lost person would even know that they're lost and need salvation is a supernatural act of God. Have you ever thought of that? That doesn't just come natural. People don't just look around and think, wow, I'm spiritually dead. I need life. No, if you're spiritually dead, you're dead. You don't have any spiritual desires. There's, there's none of that. A spiritually dead person does not even realize that they are spiritually dead and in need of spiritual life. Now, you say, well, but they're, they're really seeking God. Listen carefully to me. No lost person ever seeks God. They may seek some kind of experience. They may sense an emptiness. As, as Pascal said, there is a, a God-shaped vacuum inside every man, but they don't even know what, what's missing and what's there. But you say, well, I, don't, I think that's a little brash to say that no one ever seeks God. I didn't say it. It's in the Scriptures. Listen to Romans chapter 3, verse 11. There is none who seeks for God. 
What does that mean in the Greek? There is none who seeks for God. That, that's it's what he, spirit, Dead people don't do anything when it comes to that. Spiritually dead people do nothing spiritual. They have no hunger for God. They don't know God. They're spiritually dead. And it is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, who opens the spiritual eyes of the lost to see their sin and lostness. If he didn't do that, it couldn't be done. And John 16, 8 says, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You see, realizing our lostness and being convicted of being a sinner is a supernatural act of God. And you know what? That really helps your prayer life. Because you've got a loved one, maybe even someone you live with, maybe a spouse, maybe one of your children that seems to be growing up without God. You're concerned. Or maybe it's an adult child that, that made some kind of a, as Spurgeon called it, had a spiritual spasm at one time. But you see there's no evidence that they're really born again, that they really have spiritual life. And, 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 and listen, you know, what, you know what prayer is so powerful? I can ask God about, as I pray for this lost person that's burdening my heart, I'm praying to the one, the only one who can do anything about it. It's not up to me. It's not up to somebody else. I'm looking to God and say, God, would you, would you speak to a dead spirit and bring life that they may choose to trust in Jesus Christ? Logic cannot bring conviction of sin. Logic cannot put a desire in a person's heart for God. I, it's one of the, the funniest things is that when somebody comes to Christ, they're an adult who comes to Christ and their whole life has changed. And they go to their friends and they start sharing. And, and they expect their friends to be just as excited as they are. I don't know how many times I've seen this scenario. And they go to their friends and say, come to Jesus. It's wonderful. Look, he, he's saved. Right here's how to be saved. And, and here's how you can come to know him. And, 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 and they say, I'm not interested. And, they, and they'll come, I've had them come, they'll say, Pastor, I don't understand. This is the greatest thing, this is the greatest thing ever. There's, it's like, I, he, everything is made new to me. It's like, this is wonderful. And I don't understand why they don't want anything to do with it. And I even had one friend get angry with me, told me to leave him alone. And what is wrong with these people? They are dead. They are spiritually dead. And the only reason you got excited was because God spoke, the Holy Spirit, supernaturally convicted of sin. Now, not only is the conviction of our sinfulness supernatural, repentance and faith are supernaturally enabled by God. Let me show you. Um, in 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26, with gentleness... Correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Um, you, you also find that in in the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 18. That's not in the notes, but here's another one. When they heard this. And this is when Paul is reporting about the Gentiles have come to Christ. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. But not only is repentance given by God, faith, faith is given by God. 
Listen to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I like the English Standard Version on this one. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, what is it that's not our own doing? What is it in Ephesians 2, 8 that, that is, is, a, is a gift of God? You say the, the it there, it says, and, and this is, is, uh, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is the it? Well, you say, it's grace. Grace is a gift from God. And you would be absolutely right. But the grammar, the grammar leads us to say that it's also talking about faith. Grace, the gift of grace, you have been saved through the gift of faith. And it's not your own doing. Nothing of salvation is your own doing. You say, well, don't we have to choose Christ? Yes. You, you, nobody's ever been saved who, who did not hear the gospel and, and chose to trust Christ. But God had to do a work enabling you to repent, granting repentance, and faith in order to believe. You know, God's fixed it, so he's the only one that gets glory out of salvation. And, and you know what? That's good because he's the only one that deserves the glory. And we simply are left with lives poured out in thanksgiving to serve him for what he has done. Now, here's the point I want you to get. From beginning to end, salvation is supernatural. And so when we realize that, we talk about giving our prayers power. It's when we begin to pray for God to grant repentance and give faith to those who, who we love and who we care about that we see headed down a path toward destruction, a path into all kinds of sin, a path that eventually leads to separation from God forever. And we can pray, God, you have the power to do this. It's supernatural. And so conviction, the awareness of sin, and lostness is supernatural. Repentance, supernatural. Faith that saves, supernatural. And that's just the beginning. Following salvation, the Holy Spirit desires to fill the believer's life and supernaturally live out Christ's resurrection life through each saved person. You were saved, not just so you could go to heaven when you die. You were saved so that your life could be a vessel through which Christ's life flows and others could be touched by Christ as he flows through you, as he uses you. Um, in, 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 to live out Christ's resurrection life, what, what does that look like? When we say Christ's very life, in fact, if somebody were to ask you, how would you describe the person of Christ? You say, well, he's the son of God. Yeah, but I'm, I mean, more in, in character, more in quality. What, what is Jesus like? What characterizes Christ? Well, I can tell you. And I can tell you with absolute certainty. And I can show you where to find it. And let me just give it to you. Here's, here's what Christ's life looks like. Here's description of Christ. It's a... It, it's, you count them there, so I think there's nine, it's a ninefold description of Christ. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit, who is called the Spirit of Christ in many places, the fruit of the Spirit is, now here's what Jesus looks like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That, that's a description of Jesus. And how does that, how, how does it describe us? When the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, fills us, 
He supernaturally gives us the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, all nine of those qualities. And so the power to live the Christian life is found on the Christian life is when our life begins to manifest Christ, these qualities of Christ. And the power to live the Christian life is found only in being filled with the Holy Spirit, with the Spirit of Christ. Now, you can't, and hear me clearly, you cannot work up the fruit of the Spirit. You cannot. You say, oh, that guy makes me so angry, but I'm going to love him. I'm going to grit my teeth. I'm going to think happy thoughts, and I'm going to love him. Oh, I love him. I love him. I love him. Oh, I hate him. You know, you, you can't work that up. It just will not happen. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit produced by the Spirit. It's supernatural. He must produce it when he fills our life, not through Just discipline and hard work, though it may involve that, that's not the power behind it. Now, when Jesus gave his disciples their marching orders, right before he ascended back to heaven, in fact, the next verse talks about his ascension into heaven. So here he is with his disciples in his resurrected body, getting ready to go back to heaven. And he says in Acts 1-8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, you cannot be a consistent witness. You cannot consistently make disciples apart from being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, let's look at an example of what that looked like in the early church. I mean, the, the, the early church where it was all new. They hadn't been through huge amounts of training, and yet we see what they were doing. They had the Spirit of Christ living in them. They'd been transformed. And in Acts, we, we see that what Jesus described in Acts 1-8, that I read just a moment ago, in action in Acts 4:31. And when they had prayed, the place where they gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. This wasn't natural boldness. This was supernatural boldness. They were, they were in danger of being persecuted, of being imprisoned, and still with boldness they spoke forth His Word. So the work of making disciples and manifesting these nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit um, is dependent on our being filled with the Spirit. Now, there, there is, listen, there is nothing, hear me, there is nothing more frustrating than trying to live the Christian life in the power of our own flesh. I know, I'm a poster child for that. Um, that was my testimony for the first 16 to 18 years of my Christian life. I had the desire, but somehow through discipline, and, and, and just regimenting my life, somehow I could do it. And, and, and you always crash and burn when you do that because you can't do it in your own strength. So let's talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of misinformation. And rather than my go in, going into this view that teaches this is wrong, and here's why they're wrong, and this view that teaches this is wrong, and here's why they're wrong, I'm just going to give you what I believe to be the truth, and we'll stick with that. Now, uh, Ephesians 5:18. as we look at what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit, 
The Christian Standard Bible, I like the translation because of the first part. It uses a word that's not as hard to understand as some of the other translations. He says, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions. And that's a really good translation of what's sometimes translated dissipation in some other translations. But that doesn't communicate as well as reckless actions. And that's what dissipation is. But here's the alternative. Be filled by the Spirit. Every word of that command, be filled by the Spirit, is very, very important. In the original language of the New Testament, the Greek language, the word translated filled was used in three different ways. And, and not that it's, it was exclusive. Sometimes they kind of melted together. But here's the three ways that word was used and what it meant. First of all, the word that's translated filled, when it says be filled with the Spirit, meant to empower. It was the word that was used to describe a ship, a sailing ship, when the wind blew and empowered the ship to go across the sea. And that's the word that's used to, when it talks about our relationship with the Holy Spirit. But be empowered by the Holy Spirit would not be a wrong translation of be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, um, without the Holy Spirit, we don't have the power to obey God. I mean, the, t- the title of this, of this le- lesson is Power to Live the Christian Life. And that power comes through the Holy Spirit empowering us in all I do, in all we do. Se- second, that same word is also used to communicate something that permeated it permeated. Let me, let me give you an illustration. When, when Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, took a very costly aromatic oil, is probably what we would call it today, uh, and, and anointed Jesus with it. Here's what we read in John chapter 12, verse 3. So the house was filled. Same word. Same word as in Ephesians 5.18. The house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now, now what's the emphasis there? Every nook, every cranny, every closet, every room in that little house was totally permeated by the sweet smell of that expensive ointment that had been used to anoint Christ. Every room, every place. And so when the Bible says be filled with the Spirit, it means there's nothing held back in saying, Lord, you can have all of me except this part, and you can't have that. No, Being filled with the Spirit means He permeates all of your life. There's nothing held back. Um, Well, the third, and and really what is the most common use of this word translated filled, means to control. So it would not be wrong to translate Ephesians 5.18, the last part, but be controlled by the Holy Spirit. In Luke 6 Jesus had done the unthinkable of healing someone on the Sabbath. And boy, did the legalistic religious leaders come after him on that one. And it says in Luke 6, 11, but they themselves were filled with rage. Now, what does it mean to be filled with rage? It means that you are totally controlled by that rage. Have you ever had to deal with somebody that's enraged? Um, it's not a pretty sight. They're, they're just controlled by the rage. And they won't, you can't reason with them. You can't do anything. They're, they're controlled by it. And so to be, you know, we could say that you were filled with joy. That meant everything about you 
was controlled by the joy. It controlled how you looked at things, what you said. It controlled what you thought. Filled with joy. And it means, so it means to be, to be filled means to be controlled. Now, watch carefully. All three of these are important. When the Bible tells us in Ephesians 5.18, but be filled with the Spirit, it is saying be empowered by the Spirit. As you walk, you're trusting the Holy Spirit to give you the power to do whatever you need to do, to speak to whoever you need to speak to. You're not limited by your intelligence. You're not limited by your training. You're not limited by your natural abilities, your outgoingness or your quietness or your personality type. You can obey because He will empower you to obey everything God says to you. You have no excuse for disobedience. You have the Holy Spirit living within you who, when He fills your life, He empowers you to do everything you're to do. And so you do it with His strength. And then when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, what we're saying is, is that I want every part of my life to be permeated with the Holy Spirit. I can't have these little areas that's all to myself, these dark areas that I'm not going to let Him into. If He fills your life, He controls all of you. It's permeating. And then thirdly, He controls your life. And really, really the issue... In your life, here's it. Let's just get down to the, as, as the old saying goes, down to the brass tacks. The real question is, who's in control in your life? Who's in control? Now, you can lie to me, and you can deceive others, but you can't deceive the Lord. Who is in control? Um, I, uh, I want you to think of control as being like, the throne of your life. Who's on the throne of your life? And I'm going to tell you, there really, when it comes down to it, there's only, only two possibilities. It's either you or the Holy Spirit. I'm speaking to Christians now. It's either you or the Holy Spirit. Who's in control? Now, if it's not the Holy Spirit, it's going to be self. You know, another word for self in the New Testament is, is the word flesh. In fact, if you drop the H and spell flesh backwards, you've got self. And uh, so to say self's on the throne, flesh is on the throne, is really two different ways of saying the same things. Now, Christians who have flesh in control, flesh on the throne, may do many good things. But they're deciding what they're going to do and what they're not going to do. They're like, okay, I'll obey that. It's, it's what we would call selective obedience. It's like, hmm, I'll do that one. I can handle that. I'm not going to touch that one. No, no way. Um, well, you know what you say? So I'm, I'm sort of under the control of the Spirit and sort of under the control of the flesh. No, you're 100% under the control of the flesh. You see, when it comes to the Spirit's control, it's 100% or zero. Even if you're deciding what good deeds you're going to do and areas you're going to obey or disobey, you are the one in control. You know, we have that song that says, I surrender all. Somebody said if we sang more of what the truth was, we would say, I surrender 25 to 30%. <laughs> but in actuality, you wouldn't be surrendering anything. You're still in control of what's surrendered and what's not surrendered. I hope that makes sense. A flesh-filled person may do some th good things, but they're on the throne of their life. Galatians 5.17 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That's the self-life. For the flesh, the self-life, 
sets its desire against the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit against the flesh, the self-life. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things you please. You've got to choose self or the Holy Spirit. You can't say a little of both, no, one or the other. And if you've divided it, then in reality it's 100% flesh. You say, well, that sounds pretty harsh, Pastor. Sometimes the truth is harsh, all right? Well, let's look then at God's self-removal plan. Now, this is really, this is really neat. We've, we've looked at what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And now I want you to see God's, God's got a self-removal plan. You know, if you really belong to the Lord, He's not going to, quote, leave you alone. <laughs> he never leaves us alone. That's, that can be interpreted two different ways. I don't want Him to leave me alone. I want Him with me and His presence with me, but I also want Him to constantly be conforming me to His likeness. But let's look at God's self-removal plan. From the moment of our salvation, God begins to mature us so that we are denying self, and surrendering, giving control to Christ. Um, and God uses several different tools. Some Bible scholars call this our being broken before God. Broken of our self-will. So how does God break us? How does He start that self-removal program? Well, several ways. First one, He uses the written Word of God. I, I somehow don't think we get that. We read the Bible for too many wrong reasons. Your personal Bible reading is to say, Lord, I want you to break me. I want you to show me anywhere that self, flesh, has crept in. I want you to just break me with your word. Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The Word of God has power. It has the power to break us of that self-life. Jeremiah talks about breaking in chapter 23, verse 29. God is speaking to Jeremiah, and he says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters the rock? God's Word burns away the dross, the self-life, and it breaks apart like hammer-breaking rocks, that self-life trying to, seeking to control. Now, have, have you ever, when I teach our tell class, I always ask this question, and I get kind of some strange looks sometimes, but have you ever been just reading the Word, not to prepare a Sunday school lesson or satisfy curiosity, but you're just reading through the Word, listening, praying the Word. Uh, as, when you come under... And have you ever just been broken by the Word of God? Just broken. I said, oh God, this isn't... What you're describing is not me, and I want this to be me. I, I, don't, I don't see this as true in my life. Oh God, bring this about. And it's just a brokenness. That's, that God uses His powerful Word. Listen, if you're not taking time in the Word, my goodness, friend, please. This is the most important thing you can do. As the Word breaks apart the rock like a hammer. Um, and then when we come to God's Word with an open and surrendered heart, He will reveal our self-life with all of its stubbornness, its ugliness. And lead us to total surrender. Here's a a second self-removal 
uh, tool God uses. And I'm putting them together, those are three. Trials, disappointment, and pain. God uses trials, disappointment, and pain to break us of this self-life. Um, he uses these circumstances to reveal to us that self's on the throne of our life many times. And through trials, disappointment, and pain, he brings us to a total surrender. And in that, he matures us and conforms us to the very likeness of Christ. The verse I claim more than any other is Romans 8:28, And then the first part of verse 29 concludes it there, the whole thought. And we know, it doesn't conclude it, but it tells you, it connects it. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Now, when He takes all things, here's what that means in the Greek. All things. That means He takes the sweet, precious things, the happy things, the fulfilling things. He takes the painful things, the disappointments in life. He takes the physical pain. He takes pain in relationships. He takes, fill in the blank, all things. He causes all things to work together for good. And what is that good? To remove the self-life from the throne so that Christ can reign over all. And, what you know, listen. Let's just be honest. What happens when everything's going smooth in your life? We tend to kind of put the cruise control on and go through life, and we don't sense our need for the Lord so much. And we begin to kind of get a little too careless in some things. And so what does God do? He allows us to go through some pain, through some trials. Um, uh, and, and, and when you know how He's using them, you know what you can say about trials? I love First Peter 5.10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect. That word means complete. Perfect you. Confirm you. Strengthen you. And establish you. How does he do that? Through suffering. Relationship suffering. Physical suffering. Whatever it may be. Um, And I, I don't. I can think of two testimonies that had almost the same words, and it was in two different churches. So they didn't even know each other. And I think there's been more than that. But here, if these, if they weren't identical, they were almost identical. Here's what the testimony was. These were both testimonies from people who had been through unspeakable trials. I mean, just horrible trials. And it went something like this. I wouldn't wish on anybody what I've been through, but I wouldn't take anything for it. Wow, that's stamping Romans 8, 28 and 29 over our trials. That God, His self-removal plan involves many times our going through trials, disappointment, hurt, and pain. Well, He uses not only His Word and trials, disappointment and pain, He uses other believers. It's God's plan that believers in the church... Love one another enough to confront, challenge, motivate, and surrender to, to motivate to total surrender and allowing Christ to be their lives. That's that's an element of the church we just miss. We come to church to hear a sermon and go home and maybe do a good little deed every once in a while. How pathetic! Listen, the church is a body. It's a family. It talks about it being the family of God. And within this family, we are to love one another enough to confront the manifestations of self. And I know, you know, some people can be abrasive about it. 
Some people can be real abrasive. Um, but it's God's plan that we love one another enough to confront. Hebrews 10.25 says, Not forsaking our own assembling together as the, habit of, as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, the coming of the Lord is what it's talking about when things are coming to a conclusion. And, and we're, we're to be about encouraging one another. That, that word encouraging literally means to come alongside... It's the word parakaleo. Para means alongside. Kaleo means to call. To call alongside. To come along somebody that's sagging under a load. And to pick them up. And sometimes to show them why the load has been brought on them on by, their, by their, own, their, their own decisions and their own approach to life. And so you're helping them get rid of that load of the sin and the, the, the self-life. So that they might stand straight once again and begin to walk in health, spiritual health. Um, that's... Other believe, God uses other believers in his self-removal plan. Well, that brings us, finally, to just, just very practical, how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I want to look once again at that command in Ephesians 5.18. He says, And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled by the Spirit. Every true Christian... Every, no exception, every true Christian has the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, indwelling them. But every Christian does not have the Holy Spirit controlling them. Hopefully you've gotten that through what we've looked at so far. And remember, that word filled means controlled by. And the tenses in Ephesians 5.18 are very revealing. When it says, but be filled by the Spirit... It's talking about a continuing action, but it's literally, but be being filled by the Holy Spirit. And just as somebody gets drunk by drinking alcohol, even so, they stay drunk by drinking more and more. If you quit drinking, you start sobering up. Now, that's a good thing, of course. But using this analogy, he's saying just as, and, and when a person is drunk with wine, the alcohol begins to control the way they think, the way they talk, the way they walk, the way they act. And he says, even so, the Holy Spirit, when we are being filled with the Holy Spirit, he controls the way we walk, the way we talk, the way we see things, the way we view things, our reactions to things. Every true Christian has the Holy Spirit indwelling them, but not every Christian has the Holy Spirit filling them. So what do we do? Well, first of all, you need to have an examination. To be filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't mean you have to go into the woods and meditate for 60 days before you come out. There's, but there, there are some, there's some preparation for being filled with the Spirit. You do need to get alone from with God and do some examination. Now, I think the, I think the Bible summarizes all the ways we grieve that that we disobey and have sin that we need to confess. I think it's it's found under two phrases in the Scripture. Uh, we need first of all to examine our lives to. See if we have grieved the Holy Spirit, because even a Christian can grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, puts it like this. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We grieve the Holy Spirit through unconfessed, unrepented of sin in our life. Now, grieve is a love word. He didn't say, don't anger the Holy Spirit. A person you have... A person you have no relationship with, you can make them angry. Just drive down the street. <laughs> Pull out in front of somebody. Didn't it amaze you? This is a timeout. 
Doesn't it amaze you that when you accidentally push your shopping cart out in front of somebody at Walmart and you say, oh, excuse me, they say, no problem. And the same person, if you pull your car out in front of them in the parking lot, they're shaking their fingers, fist at you, and sometimes making other signs and screaming and yelling and sometimes pulling out guns. Uh, I never did figure that out. Anyway, that was, that was just totally extra. Um, so we grieve the Holy Spirit. Um, grieve is a love word. You, 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 grieve, you grieve someone who loves you. Uh, the context, let, let me just read what some of the descriptions are of how we grieve the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, um, let's read verse 25 through 29. Therefore, lay aside falsehood. Speak the truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. In other words, controlled anger. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And then the very next verse is, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, you, you, you see here that the Holy Spirit is grieved by these sins of doing what we're not to do. Um, and these are just examples. That's not an exhaustive list. The second way we sin that we as believers need to constantly examine our lives on is we not only can grieve the Holy Spirit, we can quench the Holy Spirit. First Thessalonians 5.19 simply says, Do not quench the Spirit. Now, These two hit sin from opposite directions, but it helps us to see sin more in our life. The Holy Spirit is often pictured as a fire that guides us and ignites us. Ignite us in the good sense of the word, to set us on fire for the Lord. To quench the Holy Spirit is to put out the fire. Now, that refu- that it's, it's when the Holy Spirit leads us to do something. It's not talking about some biblical prohibition and we do it and we have grieved the Holy Spirit. This is talking about when the Holy Spirit is leading us to do something, we refuse to do it. We've quenched the Holy Spirit. Um, it may be to, to speak to someone about Christ. It may be to um, lovingly confront someone that you see things in their life that's just destroying them and you're afraid they're going to get angry and so you'd rather let them go on in their own life rather than take a chance that they might hurt your little, your little psyche. Um, and, and so we, and, and I'm not making fun because I've done that plenty of times and had to repent of that, but, but it's, it's, he's leading us and we say, no, we've quenched the Holy Spirit. Now watch, we grieve the Spirit when we do that which we should not do, and we quench the Spirit when we refuse to do what He's told us to do. And so that's where our examination takes place, as we examine our lives. And anywhere that we have quenched or grieved the Holy Spirit, we confess that to the Lord. If, it's, if we have, have grieved the Spirit by, by being disobedient, we resolve in the Spirit's power to stop that, to repent of that, and to turn around and live in obedience in His strength. He gives the strength to do it. Um, Now, so there's examination. Have we grieved or quenched the Holy Spirit? Then there's a presentation. If He's going to be in control, then we present all that we are to all that He is. 
Romans 12.1, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The sense is that we present our bodies and all they contain, the soul, the spirit, all of our being, our mind, our emotions, our will, our worship, all of that is presented to him alone. And he will not fill a person who holds anything back from laying it on God's altar. A total surrender is another way to put this. A total surrender. I ran across as I was preparing for tonight um, an old song that's not even in, it was in the 1950-something Baptist hymnal, but I remember singing this song uh, when I was much younger. And uh, the title of the song was, Is Your All on the Altar? And uh, has anybody ever heard the song, Is Your All on the Altar? Oh, I see that hand. Not very many of them. Let me just read you the chorus. Is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid? Your heart does the Spirit control. You can only be blessed and have peace and sweet rest as you yield Him your body and soul. Uh, That's some good words. And that's what Romans 12.1 is talking about. So there's this presentation of your life to the Lord, saying, Lord, I totally surrender. I take hands off my life. You can do with me whatever you please. You can send me anywhere. You can forbid me from going anywhere. You can, you can bring anything into my life. You choose. I will not fight you. I surrender to you. I present my body a living sacrifice. Then there's supplication. Presentation. Supplication. That's another word for prayer. In Philippians 4, 6, it says, by through prayer and supplication, make your request known unto God. And so, to be filled with the Spirit, I must ask the Lord, I must ask the Lord to fill me. And just say, Lord, I, I, I want you to fill me. I believe that I am not, but I have confessed everywhere that you've shown me. I have grieved you and quenched you. And now would you just fill me? What does fill mean? Control, empower, permeate my life. It may be that you've reached this point by going through lots of trials and problems, and that's been your self-removal plan for you that God has, and you say, now, Lord, I surrender all. Or it may be that things are going well for you, but you recognize you're still in control. And this is a constant battle because we tend to take control back. You know, this this presenting yourself as a living sacrifice on God's altar, uh, I like what Tony Evans said. He says, the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar, and we have to put it back on. And I surrender today. It's not enough from today. It's enough for our surrender tomorrow. And if you ask him to fill you, he will, because it's his will. Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Have you ever asked the Lord to fill your life after having presented it to him? Lord, I'm trusting you to take control. I will do whatever you tell me to do, only you've got to give me the power to do it. You say, that's kind of scary, Pastor. Well, yeah, but when you step out in faith and you begin to see him actually do it, it's absolutely amazing. So we ask believing for what he's promised. And when we ask what he's already, we know it's in his will. First John five fourteen and 15 says, that if we ask anything according to his will, we know we have the petitions we desired of him. Because we ask in his will. Um, examination, presentation, then there's supplication. And then finally, appropriation. To, to appropriate something is to count it as true and act like it's true because God said it's true whether you feel like it's true or not. 
Did you get that? (laughs) It's to count something as true, then act like it's true, because God said it's true, whether your emotions, your feelings agree or not. And if we've emptied out the sin that was grieving and or quenching the Holy Spirit, and we've yielded to the control of the Holy Spirit, and we've asked the Father in faith to fill us with His Spirit, then all that's left is for us to simply count it as done, appropriate by faith that He is filling us, and step out in obedience. And sometimes you're still scared. It's interesting. In Galatians 5.16, he says, Walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. You know, walking is interesting. And, and I've shared this many times, but it always blesses me, so I wanted to hear it again. It's because it's not original. But walking really is controlled falling. When you walk, it's, it's kind of a, a demonstration of faith. That's why it talks about walking in the Spirit. When you walk, what do you do? You, you really fall. It's controlled falling. When you walk, you're, you pitch your body forward, trusting that this right leg is going to step out and catch you. And you straighten up and get your balance. Then you fall forward, trusting the left leg is going to catch you. And so that's why the Lord chose this walk as a picture of what it means to, to live life, trusting in, appropriating the Holy, Holy Spirit's fullness, that everything you're asked to do, everything the Spirit leads you to do, every person you're supposed to talk to, going to a person asking if you could spend time with them, that you could study the Scriptures together and you could disciple them, confronting a situation that you really don't want to confront because it could be really bad, whatever you're facing, you, you simply say, Lord, here I go, believing you. And as I step out, I'm trusting you and I'm walking in the Spirit. Oh, thank you, Lord. And now I keep going, Lord. Now I'm going to walk. And, that, and, and the Holy Spirit, you know, sometimes when we literally walk, our foot gets caught on a root and we go flat on our nose. But when you're walking in the Spirit, He never stumbles. He never stumbles. And so we step and depend, step and depend, and that's the glorious adventure of the Spirit-filled life. You know, there are many times, and I use myself as an illustration because I know me and better than any of you, but there are many times we, um, we tend to think that somebody that's filled with the Spirit has all this confidence inside, and like, I've got it all together. I spend most of my life scared to death. I'm not afraid of some person. Um, I don't have any fear of the dark. Those are kind of things. I don't even think about that. But God's continually calling me to things that scare me to death, such as preaching. I I mean, it's like you say, after all these years, it must just come natural. Not quite. Many times down on that front pew down there, while you're singing the last words of a song you're looking at on the screen, I'm saying, oh, God, help me. This is a really terrible message. <laughs> but, Lord, I did my best, and I trusted you. And I believe that you gave it to me, so here goes. And if you don't do something, I'm sunk. And so here I go, Lord. Lord, they're about to finish. It's got those little bitty letters at the bottom, which means it's giving licensing stuff. And that means it's about over. And then I'm on. <sighs> okay, Lord, here I go trusting you. Step, fall, step. Fall, step, fall, step, step, preach. And um, in so much of life, it's that, it's that way for every Christian. You, 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 if you lose that sense of your own inadequacy, guess what you start doing? You start trusting in your own strength or power. But when there is that sense of you are incapable, 
and you don't have, I, I can't do that, then those are the kind of people that God delights to use because when He does, He gets all the glory.